Hello. Hello, everyone. Why don't we find our way back to our seats, and we are going to be opening the book of Ze Zechariah tonight, so why don't you turn to the book of Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, we can get you one in the back. Um, and it's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Go to Matthew, go back Malachi, you're at Zechariah right after that, so make your way there. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. So Lord, we just thank you once again for um, just the opportunity to open your word, and we thank you, God, for uh, just the, the truths that uh, we see in it when we open it and we gather together, Lord, and just pray that your Holy Spirit will just work this evening in our hearts, um, open our eyes to what you want us to know from your word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, uh, the book of Zechariah. Um, I got a quote from C.I. Schofield that kind of gives a, um, like a background on the book of Zechariah, which I think will kind of open our hearts and minds to what we're going to see when we go into the book. So, uh, he says... <clears throat> No Old Testament prophet has more prophecy concerning Christ, Israel, and the nations in so short a book. Zechariah predicts the second coming, the reign of Christ, his priesthood, his kingship, his humanity, his deity, his building of the temple of the Lord, his coming in lowliness, his bringing of permanent peace, his rejection and betrayal, his return to Israel as the crucified one, and his being smitten by the sword of the Lord. So... That's a lot of stuff packed into one minor prophet, uh, 14 chapters, but it's very messianic. We're going to learn a lot about Christ, his first coming, second coming. We're going to see those things. Uh, there's a bunch of titles for Christ as we go through the book of Zechariah. You're going to see things like Jehovah's servant, the branch, the man, the king, the priest, the true shepherd, the stone. We'll get to all those things in the upcoming weeks, but... Um, but what I want to tell you is that this book was written to comfort Israel in a time of great distress. In fact, Zechariah's name means God remembers, which was something important for them at the time. So God's remembering and comforting his people at a time. So I'll give you some historical background on where we're at when we get to the book of Zechariah. When we come to Zechariah, we get a group of people who are, people of Israel are in a critical moment in their history. 18 years have passed since Cyrus the Great um, had conquered the Babylonians, and the Babylonians, if you remember, took Israel captive, took Judah captive in 586 B.C. So after that, Cyrus the Great ends up conquering Babylon, and so he inherits this group of Jewish captives that they're now his. So um, Israel had been in captivity, if you remember, for 70 years for national sin. God had sent them out. Cyrus comes in. He makes a decree that they can all go back to the land. And that's about 538 BC. And the whole record of this, if you want to read it, uh, behind Zechariah is recorded in the book of Ezra. So go there, you'll get to see all those things that are happening. The problem is um, the people got their roots down. They're, up, they're in, the, they're in uh, Babylon for 70 years. So they get the roots down in the land. And many of the Jews were pretty well settled. You know, they, they'd gotten into enterprises, they got married, um, and so forth. They did all those things. You can imagine that's what happens to us, right? 70 years somewhere. But the problem is they would have known because of the prophecies like Jeremiah said, you're going out. But then the prophecies also said, you're coming back. And so they shouldn't have gotten too relaxed and too settled. And when this decree comes, only a small remnant decides to go back. And before we even get to Zechariah, 
Um, this is something Rachel and I were talking about on the way here. I was asking her, is there anything in your life that if God calls you to do something, like you're so intertwined with the culture, you're so intertwined with whatever it is in your life that you say, I can't do that. You know, are we agile enough to be able, when God calls, to say, I'm not holding on to anything and I can move and work and go, you know? That's, that's what we see here because if you remember, the, is, the, the people of Israel, the blessing, that was their land. The land was theirs. This is their land that they should have gone to and God had great blessings for them, but they got intertwined in a place they shouldn't have been intertwined with and they don't go back. And God's saying, Throughout Zechariah, he's also making that call, come back, come back to the land. So, you know, God's got blessing for us if, if we're agile enough to be obedient to him when the call. And it's one of the things I'm just thinking in my own life is, is there anything in our lives that's standing in, a, in the way of obedience to the Lord? You know, if anything that might come up in our lives, say, boy, I just don't want to get rid of that. I just bought a shed and I don't want to leave my house, you know. I, I just bought a shed, by the way. But, you know, if God called me somewhere else, shed's out. I don't really care. It's just stuff. But, but you know, is there anything where you really look at yourself and say, I can never leave, I can never go because I'm, I'm intertwined with the culture, you know. That's where we don't want to be. So that's what ends up happening here with these people. A small group goes back. Um, so they return. So the small group returns under a leader called Zerubbabel. And he's important. We'll see him in the book of Zechariah. So we got Zechariah, we got Zerubbabel, keeping people straight. So it's a small group, but they're enthusiastic. They come back. And Ezra 3 records when they get back to Israel, in seven months, they had rebuilt the sacred altar. They were performing sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament. You know, 43,000 was all that came back. But by the beginning of the second year, they had begun to build and the, the temple itself. They'd, God wanted the temple built. They're going to build it by the second year. And it became known as Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple. So if you're keeping track of that stuff. So the foundations are laid. The base of the wall was laid by that point. And then some bad things started to happen. And this is what, you know, you start cruising in ministry. You're doing what God wants you to do. And then bad things happen. So the Samaritans come down. And they tried to stop them. And the Samaritans, in case you don't know, Samaritans were the, uh, the northern kingdom, were Jews who stayed in the northern kingdom. They ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians when the Assyrians conquered. And so they became these, what the Jews called, half-breeds, and they didn't get along with the Jews. So we end up with this group of people. They come down, they harass them about building the temple, and the temple stops, the building of the temple. And it took Nehemiah coming all the way later. He comes back to get it moving again, get the walls built, all that stuff. So facing the opposition, it all ended. But God wanted the temple built. That's what he wanted. And he wanted worship reinstated. And, and God raised up two prophets. Two prophets were Haggai and our guy Zechariah that we're going to talk about. I don't want to steal Tim's thunder, but Haggai was before Zechariah. And he's going to speak about Haggai at some point in the future here. But Haggai's ministry was to exhort the people to get going on building the temple. That's what he wanted them to do. He said, time up. So the message brought some revival in Israel. That's what ends up happening. So in the midst of the revival, God raises up a second prophet, Zechariah. And if we look at it, <clears throat> Zechariah begins his prophecy two months after Haggai. And you don't have to be some uh, great studier of the word to find this out. You look at Haggai 1.1 and it says, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius, was Haggai, and Zechariah starts up his, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, 
he begins his prophecy. So it's pretty simple to find that out. <clears throat> so Zechariah comes along, and he wants to comfort the people because they're, they're finding opposition, and they're trying to get this thing done. But it, we'll get into it, but the places, it's like rubble there in Jerusalem. Things aren't going well. So God's comforting his people through the prophet in a time of hardship as they're rebuilding the country and the temple. So that's our brief analysis to get us up to the point of Zechariah. I hope that all made sense. So let's open uh, to the first verse of Zechariah. And it says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido the prophet, saying, and I'll stop you there, because this is the second year, it's about 520 BC, and um, since 586 BC, I think this is something that we don't always think about, but since 586 BC, Jerusalem had been under the control of Gentile kings, right? And in the midst of that happening, we have this prophet. We actually have two prophets rise up. So the word of the Lord comes when they're in a state where there's, they're under rulership that they don't like, you know, that they, they're under, and they've been under this Gentile rulership. So out of it comes the word of the Lord. And what an amazing blessing for them to have the word of the Lord come from two separate prophets at this time. It's kind of amazing. So Zechariah is a common name in the Old Testament. There's 27 other people in the Bible named Zechariah. Um, so if you see Zechariah, it may not be this guy. So if you happen to read other places. Ido was his grandfather. And if you look in Ezra and Nehemiah, we find out that he was a priest, not a prophet. So he was... He was a priest, so Zechariah comes from a priestly background. His father's Berechiah. We don't know much about him. But Zechariah was a prophet who ends up giving his life in martyrdom. Jesus actually talks about this Zechariah in Matthew 23. He was reprimanding the scribes and Pharisees that they were the sons of those that, who didn't listen to the prophets of old. And, and he says, and he ends up telling them that he was martyred uh, at that time. So we have Zechariah who gives his life for the Lord. So this is just neat. This is why I wanted to stop the first verse. We've got Zechariah, whose name means Jehovah remembers. We've got Berechiah, his dad means Jehovah blesses. And Ido means in his times. So we have the message of the book kind of in the names of these people. The Je Jehovah remembers and blesses in his time when you put them together, which... I know there's some stuff like that with Noah's lineage, but um, I thought that was cool. So here, verse 2. The Lord has been very angry with your fathers, he says. So we see the wrath of God. Literally, this verse means that angry was Jehovah at your fathers with great anger. And all they had to do was look around to realize that God was angry with the situation. He had, I mean, the, the rubble was the example that God had been angry and also they had been taken out of the land. I mean, that would have been very clear for the people that God was angry about sin. His holy, righteous character is indignant about sin. And, and so he's saying, you know, you had, you had done this. You're, I was angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So we have this uh, Lord of hosts being said here. It's the Lord of armies. And when you, when you think about it that way, it's really showing his power, his authority. And God is saying, return to me. Uh, the people were back in the land, but they weren't returned to God. That, you know, that's the thing. What is returning to God? Well, that's repentance, right? That's coming back, having that repentance in your heart. 
It starts with repentance. Repentance is always the key to the blessings of God. If we're going to be, if we want to see the blessings of God, repentance, turning back to God, has to happen in your life. And it was all through the Old Testament, right? That's every time a prophet had to be raised up, their message was, return to God, return to him. I mean, the first call in the outreach in Acts 2 was a call to repentance. And the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. What a beautiful thing. And the thing I think that, I think a lot of times when we're dealing with our sin in our lives, we think about, you know, it, it's weighty on us, but God is quick to forgive. That, that's, a, that's something that I think when we're weight, the sin feels weighty, God is quick to forgive. Um, the thing that he, he's never far off when, when we need to come back to him in repentance. So if there's something in our lives, the, the prodigal son story comes to mind when I think about this return to me, because if you don't know the prodigal son story, the father has, Jesus tells a parable of two sons. One son works for his father, does a great job. Second son says, I want my inheritance, takes off, and he spends it all, does atrocious things, goes off, and he ends up coming to his senses, and he says, my goodness, if I just go back, it's better there than it is here. I, you know, I'm I'm eating stuff that's thrown to pigs. I'm going to go back to my father. And the blessed thing that we see, and I think Jesus is making this point when we see the, the father, when he sees the son far off, he runs to him. And I go, oh my goodness, what a beautiful picture that is that God's not sitting there waiting for us like we do when someone gives us an apology. We go, well, you were an idiot. You did all those things. You know, it's like when we come back, and, and want repentance, and we come back with a heart that's turned over to God, God's like, I got you. Come on, come on back. You understand, and you come back into it. There might be consequences to your sin, but, you know, but he's saying, let's have a party. You know, that's what happened with the father there. It's when someone returns, oh my goodness, God's love for that is what he wants. What, it's just a beautiful picture. There was another thing we were talking about. We were in Ephesians with the youth group, and in Ephesians 2, um, Ephesians 2.13, Paul's talking to the, uh, the Gentiles about who they were before Christ. And he says, but now in Christ, this is Ephesians 2.13, he says, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I mean, you get that picture of, uh, I'm way out there, but now I've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now it's not, now it's not when, when we sin that we're now way off away from God. It's like, we're there. There's already intimate relationship. Can we restore that by coming back to him in repentance? So God is quick to forgive. And that's why as Christians, we spend our life in confession, repenting, you know, asking God to examine our hearts, see what's in my life that's not, that's not appropriate, God, I, I, that's sinful. I need it out of my life and come back to God. And that's the call that God has for these people. God's wrath is always averted when there's repentance and confession and coming back to him. What a beautiful thing for us. So um, God's call for these people at this time in Zechariah is return to me. That's what I want to see. In verse 4, he says, do not be like your fathers. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Don't be like your fathers. Don't be like that. In God's mercy, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And God's saying, 
Don't be like them. You're, if you return back to the land, don't be like them. You've got to start having that in your brains that you're going to be obedient and like following me. So they didn't listen, and it resulted in captivity. And so the people, you know, for us as parents, why is it so important that we walk in obedience to God? Because our kids tend to pick up on those same habits, you know, like what are we followers of Christ? They look at us and they go, that person, now they may go off on their own. They may do, they may go crazy, but are you obedient to the Lord? Are we obedient to the Lord when we, and are we following him and then let God deal with their hearts and those types of things? So don't be like your fathers. Uh, they knew the results of their father's sin, and God is once again using another prophet to call them to repentance. So 5 and 6, it says, <clears throat> Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded you, commanded by my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. He's telling them, look at the pattern of history. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And uh, it was, it was, we, we sang that song, Promises, tonight. <laughs> and we love songs where we talk about the faithfulness of God because God's always faithful, right? But we don't think about necessarily, you know what? God's faithful to bless, but guess what? God is also faithful <laughs> He's also faithful when he says he's going to bring wrath on something. He's going to bring punishment. He's faithful in both of those circumstances. So when we screw up, you can expect that the faithful God's going to be faithful. You know, he, he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so that's what we see here. And, and they, they realized it. They said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. So that's the first message that I think gives uh, gives the rest of the book kind of its feet. Come back to me in repentance. Don't do like your fathers did. And then guess what? There's all these blessings that are going to flow out of that. And that's what Zechariah, just the comforting of when you return to me, guess what's going to happen? And we're going to see those things. So we jump forward about three months and um, Zechariah begins a, a series of eight visions. And they start at chapter 1, verse 7, and they go all the way to chapter 6, verse 15. And the purpose of the visions is that God's got this marvelous plan laid out for the people. You know, when they repent, this is the types of things that are going to happen. And each vision is distinct. You're going to see none of them are the same. But ultimately, God has, he's playing it out all a bunch of different angles that he's coming in. So let's look at uh, verse 7 and 8. So it says, <clears throat> On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. So I'm just going to take you there. So we, um, we have a few things. He's got in one night... Uh, he sees these eight visions, and just a vision is not like a dream. A vision is you're awake. You're having, you're, you're doing this. It's not the same as a dream. So a vision is given when somebody is awake. A dream is given when somebody's asleep. So he saw. So the first thing he sees is a man on a red horse, and it probably, probably the proper translation isn't necessarily a bright red horse, but a reddish brown horse. Um, and when we think about horses in Scripture, we just gotta got to know 
how scripture handles horses and when they're, when they're shown. In scriptural horses are many times representative of war. So, so we have a red horse and red symbols of like blood, vengeance, judgment. You know, we know the Messiah comes in Revelation 19. His garments are going to be stained with blood. So Zechariah, we're seeing, and you're going to see as we continue on, we're seeing like a war horse prepared for battle. He's kind of in that state. He's standing among the myrtle trees. And we were in Israel, and I tried to get our guide to give me a myrtle tree, piece of a myrtle tree, and he gave me, a, a, he gave me something that was a, um, he said was from a myrtle tree. But when I asked him about do you have any myrtle trees? Because I would heard that there were a lot of myrtle trees in Israel. And he came back with the plant the next day, which was amazing, but I don't know if it was a myrtle or not. I, 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 tried, I was like, well, I know there's distinct things about the myrtle tree, and I was, I was hoping that was the case. But uh, the myrtle tree is supposedly very common in Israel, and it flourishes in moist, wet areas. And so then you have, uh, they also have a very glossy green leaves, and when you bruise them, this is interesting, when you bruise them, uh, the leaves of a myrtle, it gives off its fragrance. That's when it does it, and so when it's bruised. And myrtle in Hebrew is hadassah, and the synonym, it's a synonym for Esther. So when people think about the myrtle tree, it would have a beautiful context um, in it. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 55, it says that in the millennium, there's going to be a flourishing, tremendous flourishing of the myrtle. So we've got that going on. And myrtle branches, along with palm branches, were used uh, when they would make their booths for the children of Israel when they celebrated their wanderings, like the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So we got the horses, we got uh, the, the myrtle tree, and we're standing in the hollow. We see him standing in the hollow. And some commentators told me that the lowest place outside of Jerusalem was called the hollow. So I... I looked that up, and I searched all around for it, and that's what they said. So <clears throat> the word can also mean a shady place, a shadowy place. So most likely, that's what we're seeing here. There's some low place outside, and, and there's a red horse with a rider in the middle of some myrtle trees. And we see some other horses here. Um, we see red, white, and sorrel. So sorrel is a mixture of red and white. Um, so we got blood, vengeance, we've got victory, because white, White gives us the uh, vision of victory, right? Roman conquerors would come in on white horses. We know that Christ will return on a white horse. So you have this scene of preparedness for war sitting outside the city in the myrtle trees. Who's the rider on the red horse is the big question. So if we jump down to verse 11, um, it says, So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees. So the angel of the Lord is the one who's on the horse, on this red horse. The angel of the Lord, who is the angel of the Lord, is what I would ask myself. So the angel of the Lord, several times in Scripture we know who the angel of the Lord is. We find out when Hagar was running from Sarai, the angel of the Lord comes to her. We find out that the angel of the Lord was God in that moment, right? Um, the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush. You know, that's God. We find that that's God. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis 22 and refers to himself as God. Um, the angel of the Lord. So we have this. Sometimes we see, depending on the context, we see a representative for the Lord, for God, and sometimes we see that it's God. And so uh, I think my personal opinion is that I believe this is Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ individual here standing outside because you know what the angel of the Lord, if you look at Psalm 34, 7, it says the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him. 
So this is the, what Israel would have known about the angel of the Lord. That's like his role. He's encamping round about those who fear him. What a beautiful picture. So he was the protector and deliverer of Israel. He was the commander in chief of the angelic forces. Uh, he intercedes for Israel. He's the comforter of Israel. Uh, and the myrtles, you know, flourishing, you know, we have all these myrtles. This is like an Israel place. We're seeing it, right? And then the hollow, is that low spot, I think, I think we can see that this is the deep spot where, where they were at, right? They were in this deep, dark place. And here is the angel of the Lord standing in the midst of Israel. They're in a bad state, and they're seeing the angel of the Lord. Amazing. I, I think, you know, we can, just from taking from this, you know, as the church, we're living in a fallen world, which can feel like the hollow, deep places. I mean, everything that's going on in our society right now is a little nutty. Every time we turn around, we're like, how could it be any more crazy than it just was last week? But it does. It ends up being that way. So it's very dark. And Jesus Christ is still our defender. He's, he's our protector. He's our advocate. And he's comforting us in the fact that someday he's going to come again and make all things right. You know, we've got that on our side. So things are going to be good. So let's look at 9 through 11. Uh, so then I said, my Lord, what are these? I love Zechariah because he sees stuff. A vision is shown to Zechariah, and Zechariah never knows what it is. And I'm thinking, he's just like me. I don't know what this is, right? And he, all throughout it, he goes, what's that? And he goes, and then the angel tells him. And we get later on through Zechariah, and the angel's going, Do you, don't you know what that is? He goes, I don't know what that is. So <clears throat> I could imagine that that would be me. I'm like, I don't want to miss anything. Too many times in my life, somebody says, do you know what that is? I go, yeah, sure, I know what that is. I go home, and my wife will ask me something, and I go, I don't know what they were talking about, but I just told him I did. Thankfully, Zechariah did not do that for us, and he actually listened to this angel who, who told him what was going on. So the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So <clears throat> that may sound like a good thing. So we see this. So there's another angel that comes into the mix. And um, he's an interpreter angel. He's always going to be interpreting for Zechariah. So he, he wants to know who are these riders. And the angel says, well, they're a divine patrol that's going throughout all the earth, seeing the work, seeing what's going on. And the, the angel Lord had not appeared for a very long time in the history of Israel. And now he's here to vindicate his people. We're seeing that. So um, I think that, you know, God's not going to reveal himself in our lives unless we're in this mode of repentance, like we're, we're there. And that, that's what it's kind of like, here we are, you know, we forfeit his protection from the angel of the Lord when we are off on our own thing. We have to deal with the consequences of our sin. And yet God's saying, uh, come back to me and you're back in that protection that you need to be. And the angels give a report. They say everything is still in the earth. And the term means relaxed, peaceful, tranquil, free of war. Uh, this word still is used several times in the Old Testament to refer to like selfish inactivity. So the nations around Israel were at peace. Uh, everybody's doing well except Israel. Israel was hoping when they came back to the land that they were going to be at peace. But they weren't. They were struggling. Everyone else was at rest, and they had been promised by God that when they came back from Babylonian captivity, 
all those things, they thought, oh, this hasn't come to pass. We're like really struggling here. The Gentiles were still over them, Gentile powers. They were constantly being hassled by enemies. They were defenseless because they had no walls, no army. That's, that's what we're looking at. So let's read 12 through 17. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, but they helped, but they, and they helped, but they, but with evil intent, sorry. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So I think we see Christ interceding before the Father. You know, he's saying, he's, he's got this going on, reveals himself as the defender of his people. Christ is sympathizing with his people. How long will you not have mercy? So God speaks to the angel who's in, uh, speaks to Zechariah with these comforting words. And basically they're saying God's going to keep his promise. God wants this to be proclaimed, he says in verse 17. Proclaim it, shouted to all the people. God says he's zealous for his people. And zealous is, in Hebrew, means to become intensely red, becoming flush. And God wasn't indifferent to the state of Israel. I think that's one of the things they needed to understand God loved his people, and he hated that his people were being hurt. And verse 15 reveals that God wasn't happy with what was going on. They, he had used these city, these nations. When he speaks of the nations, he's talking about Edom, Assyria, Babylon. They, they were the ones who were now at ease after all this had happened to Israel. And they were reveling in Israel's suffering. Um, God's intention was to punish them for a moment, you know, send them out and then bring them back, and yet that's not what happened. God lets them know a couple things. Look at the beauty of what he says to them. God says he's returning to Jerusalem. He says the temple will be rebuilt. There will be, a, there will be restoration, and four years after this prophecy, um, the temple was finished, and he speaks of the surveyor's line. When he says the surveyor's line is going to be pulled out, that's the fact that it's going to be the reconstructed city. It's going to come. The city was going to be prosperous. And God's going to keep his promises to his people no matter what the world is doing around him. God revealed himself. Um, I think he reveals himself the same way today in you know, Christ in the church. And believers should be the outcasts living in this world. I mean, that should be the, the state of what's going on. So we're, we're in this state of... Um, everyone around us feels at ease. I, I know you, when, when we look at the news, I'm like, how can you be at ease with these things that are going on? And yet we say, so we're the outcasts. We're not really part of the world. We're in this, we're outside the kingdoms of the world, and Christ is going to reign one day, and we're, we're hopeful of that. So Zechariah's vision for restored Jerusalem came true in a total of 80 years. So this, this right here ends up coming true. But the prophet was also looking forward to the kingdom of the Messiah to come many years. He's got a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. This temple that Zechariah builds, it gets destroyed again. 
So that can't be the interpretation of that. It's got to be the future temple that's going to be. Ezekiel talks about a millennial temple, and, and God's going to be in it. Jesus Christ is going to be on the throne. That's beautiful. We know the future of Jerusalem is secure because of the promises of God, right, that we sang about tonight. So the first vision, rider on the red horse, predicts hope for this downtrodden Israel, which I believe that they really needed. Like, this work that you're doing is for, isn't for nothing. God's going to do an amazing thing. So it makes, we come to a second vision here in the first chapter. It begins verse 18. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So there's two elements in this vision. We've got four horns and we've got four craftsmen. The four horns are animal horns, most likely horns of rams, but um, they don't talk about it here, what it is. Uh, most frequently used as a symbol of power in Scripture. So, uh, because the, that's the way the animals used it, right? If you look at Psalm 75:10, says, "All the horns of the wicked will be cut off. I will cut off," is what God says. So, cutting off the horns. Psalm 18:2 says, "The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold." So to cut off a horn is a symbol of conquering a power, and to lift up a horn is to increase someone's power. We see that through Scripture. And so he sees four symbols of power. They can be, uh, they can be a symbol of an individual or a nation, often symbols of Gentile kings in Scripture. So Zechariah looks up and he sees this vision of four Gentile kings, kingdoms associated with them. And so the angel says, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And these are the names of God's people. Um, I think what's interesting that we need to know as we look at this prophecy, the word scattered in Hebrew can mean a completed action in the past, present, or future. So we could read it, these are the horns which have scattered, are scattering, and will scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So that, that's important as we look into the future. So who are the horns? Um, who are these horns? Well, they're there are the four world powers that make up the time of the Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles began with Judah's captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, and it runs all the way to the second coming of Christ. So we're in it right now, the time of the Gentiles. And Daniel actually names these kingdoms in Daniel 2. We've got the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, and Rome. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember all that, it lays it out. The golden head was Babylon, Medo-Persia was silver, the Macedonians, the Greeks under Alexander the Great were bronze, and then the legs were the Roman Empire, east and west. So Daniel also states that a new kingdom will arise that will not be destroyed, and Christ put an end to all these kingdoms on the cross. So if we just look at them real quick, the first kingdom, Babylon, Babylon king conquered and slaughtered the Jews 605 to 586, and they went way beyond what God um, God had intended. Uh, the Medo-Persians came in, and they knocked out the Babylonians, they were violent and persecuting Israel. Israel was poor and needy, and they were kind of indifferent to them. The Greeks had terrible violence. They were next. And then in 63 B.C., Rome comes in, and they conquered Jerusalem. And the Jews did not sit well under the Roman authority, 
and they kept fighting back, and then Rome ends up destroying the temple in AD 70, and the siege on Jerusalem was, was horrific. 1.3 million Jews were killed. So God says here, they went way beyond in their hatred and despising of Israel. And the Lord shows them these four craftsmen. So that was the horns, now the craftsmen. And these are the hammer. This could be a hammer or a stonemason. And for every horn, there's a hammer. So one comes in, the hammer crushes it. And God's saying, I, I think the message that he wants them to know here is that God is saying, Israel, you're indestructible because you're mine. That, that's what's going to happen. We've got, we've got this going on, but you're indestructible. We've got the Medes conquer the Babylonians. We've got the Greeks conquering the Medes. Rome conquered the Greeks. And then Jesus Christ ultimately was the one that's conquering the, conquers Rome. So I, I think for us, just God is running history. You know, that, that's what we need to look at. Israel can trust in God who will not let his people be wiped out. He's aware of what's happening. Um, and the extent to which his people are being abused. He cares for his people. That stuff's going on. Only God can guarantee the future of any people, and, and God's guaranteeing it here. Israel's safe, even in circumstances that appear out of control. So God's plans always come to pass. No matter what depth of evil is out there, what the authorities and powers are that are going on, God's in control, and nothing's outside of his control. So um, let's get to chapter 2. So we see, then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out. And another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, for I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So we, we have this beautiful statement here about this, that there's going to be this future Jerusalem that's going to be amazing. There, it's going to be filled with people. Zechariah sees this measuring line and a surveyor angel going out here. He's measuring the city, and if you think about it, the Jerusalem was destroyed, so he couldn't have been measuring the current Jerusalem because it's, there's nothing there to measure. So he's, he's measuring this other city. Um, so ultimately, it's got to be a future Jerusalem just by the other things that are said here in the passage, right? There's going to be so many people inhabiting the city. It's gonna, uh, and that wasn't the case in the current Jerusalem where the people were so sparse. Not only that, it says that the Lord will be their wall. There wasn't going to be a wall. It was going to be the Lord that was going to be their wall. So walls were important for security at that time. It's, it's, you know, we don't necessarily build walls around our cities right now. Um, some believe that this prophecy was fulfilled in the time of Nehemiah, but at that time the city was so sparse, they were drawing lots to go there and, and live there. It seems like this has to be a millennial fulfillment because of that. And Jerusalem in the, in the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, will overflow with people. And we've got verse 5, we see that the Lord says something amazing. He will be a wall of fire and the glory in her midst. And what does that remind you of? Exodus 13, the, the glory of God dwelling among his people. Um, God says, don't worry about the physical wall. I'm going to be your wall. God will be there. His glory was going to be there. 
And that's much better than any physical wall that they could ever put up. So you can see why it would overflow with people. Why wouldn't you be where God's presence will be? That will be the amazing place. There's no better, better, safer place to be than in this, than this location. So then he gives a, uh, a call to the people who are in Babylon. He says, up, up, verse 6. Flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up. Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Trying to figure out if that's where I want to stop. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall come, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. It says, flee from the land of the north. Um, what was the land of the north? Well, that was Babylon. Babylon was always from the north. And this is directed to the captives up in Babylon. God is telling them, come back. He's saying, get out of the world system up there in Babylon. Get away from Babylon before it totally engulfs you in, in the system itself. Like we said earlier, God's always calling his people to come back enjoy fellowship. Judgment was coming to Babylon, and, and you don't want to be there when God comes against them. I, I think of Lot and his wife. Get out of there because judgment's coming. So just get out of Babylon. Get out of these places that lead to destruction and come back. And why is God always calling his people to return? Now, many passages speak to the joy of having our sins forgiven, and Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's refreshing to get your sins forgiven, to come back to the Lord. It's, so, it's a refreshing thing. He knows that the greatest joy for each of us is to come when we're walking with him. You know, that's the time. We were created by him. We told the kids in uh, VBS this week. We were created by him and for him. Well, the scriptures really said that, but we reinforced it. <clears throat> so Babylon was going to be destroyed in the near fulfillment, but there's also a future fulfillment here. The future view, we, when we studied Revelation 17 and 18, uh, the final world system is called Babylon in Revelation, and God's going to call Israel out of Babylon in the future as well. He's, that's what he's going to do. God's mercy is, is on display as he continues to pursue these people <laughs> Those who are engulfed in the system, they didn't come out of Babylon, and yet God is merciful still. He's saying, flee, get out of there. Now's the time to leave. Uh, he raises up Zechariah, another prophet here, to proclaim it and tell him to come back telling them. So he's raising up his saints today to do the same thing, proclaim the message in, in the same way. Get, get out of that stuff and come to the Lord. That's what we're called to do. In verse 8, he says, we see the Lord of hosts, the Father sends the Lord of hosts, the Son, and he says he's after glory. Everything is done for the glory of God. Even judging the nations was done for the glory of God here in this passage. So that God may be glorified. The reason he's judging the nations is because of what they've done to God's people. And look what it says that they did. It says they touched the apple of his eye. Um, 
the apple of the eye in Hebrew is the pul uh, pupil or the eyeball. And, you know, that's a, you get anything in your eye, it's, it hurts like nothing else, right? You get poked in the eye, it hurts like nothing else. And God's saying, you stuck your finger in my eye when you did this to Israel. And now God obviously doesn't have eyeballs to be poked in. But you can see it's an amazing picture of how precious Israel was to God. Israel's precious to them. And God obviously, um, I, I just think it's just a dangerous thing when people attack Israel, go after his chosen people, you know, what God is saying, who they are, is, a, is an important thing. <laughs> They're the apple of his eye. And what should people do with this news? He tells us in verse 10. What should people do with the knowledge that God's going to vindicate his people and he's going to dwell with them? It says sing and rejoice, right? It almost seems like a no-brainer in my mind. Hey, Sing and rejoice. I'm going to come dwell with you. Like, that's beautiful. God's presence dwelling with his people. What other reaction could we have? Not only that, look at the beauty of this. Many nations will be God's people, it says in verse 11. I, I think there's an encouragement there to go out and evangelize. You know what God's doing? He's already preparing hearts. Like, it's going to happen. God's preparing the hearts of the people to respond to the gospel they're going to be there. And God wants men and women to come to repentance, and he has a glorious future plan for those who surrender their lives to Christ. So we have an amazing opportunity to be a part of God's work that is already being set in motion. And one of the easiest ways to walk in God's will is to see what he's already doing and just get into the flow. That, that's Just join in. Um, when we look at Revelation 7, it says we're going to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. So we know it comes to pass. God's declared it. Um, and if you don't know Christ tonight as your personal Savior, I, I think tonight's the night that you come to him. Like, No reason to put that off any longer. Know that he wins. Come to him. God's calling you to return. And look at this. God's portion will be Judah, the Holy Land. And this is the only place in the Bible that's ever referred to as the Holy Land. And what does God's presence in a place do? Well, he makes it holy, right? That's what's going to happen when his presence is there. God's presence dwells in believers in the same way today. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we're called to be set apart unto him, set apart to be holy. And the only way to live a holy life is to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We've got to have that going on in our lives. And so verse 13 says God's power is aroused and on display in this verse. Look at it. It says, um, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. You know, all the people should be still because God would arouse himself from his holy habitation and take action on the earth. I think this is a frightening thing if you are being judged by God. But Revelation 6, a lot of Revelation stuff, but the silence of God is broken when he cracks open the seals. And we see that same sort of thing going on here. Beautiful picture of the future fulfillment of an established Jerusalem. God's presence is going to be there. There's going to be people everywhere. The wicked are going to be judged. And this is the kind of comfort when you think about the time of Zechariah that, that they wanted to hear, that they, they needed to hear at this time because they're in a downtrodden state. Everything looks like it's in total chaos. Where is God? And yet he gets a vision that says, well, he's, he's right outside and he knows what's going on. He knows what's happening in your lives. He knows that things aren't going well for you. And 
he's ready to take vengeance and move. So um, I don't want to do chapter three tonight because it'll be way too long. But um, why don't we stop there? So let's pray. So Lord God, we, uh, wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing it is to know that you are in control, God, that we can trust in you and in your power. And um, Lord, you, you are calling us all to return to you, Lord. I just pray that if there is anything in our lives, anything that is keeping us from walking in obedience to you, anything that is keeping us from uh, getting us entangled in this world, Lord, where you're wanting us to come back to you, be in blessing, and be in the place where you are exalted and uh, living in our lives and working through us, Lord. I just pray that you will reveal that, help us to come to you in repentance, and just lay that at your feet tonight, Lord. I just thank you, God, as we go out this week, Lord. Would you just be glorified in our lives? And um, Father, we just, we just thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.